Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody, it's your homeless, yellow, knife-handy bruiser, Alden McNeely. Somebody stop me smoking. That's what? right. It's your favorite zoot suit wearing, <laughs> 1994 Jim Carrey superhero, Jake Young. What? Wait, why? We're, uh, you, you said over the phone, we're doing the mask. <laughs> oh my God, Jake, No. We're doing the Max. Released in July 1994 by New Line Cinema. I mean, we probably absolutely will end up doing an episode on the mask at some point, Jake. But this week we're doing the Max. The Max. Oh, I researched both just in case. Oh, good, good. Fantastic. Now we're a week ahead on uh, on research. Smoking. (laughs) Somebody stop me. It's time to talk about the Max uh, comic book uh, that came out in the 90s. That uh, you were asking me, so when I came in just now, Jake asked me, he said, hey, Holden, first of all, fuck you. And I was like, whoa. And then he was like, "Um, also, though, did you read any of it? Did you just watch the show? You know, what was your deal? And I'm glad you asked because I can immediately go into it. Uh, I, in college, had a friend named Evan who was into a lot of cool things. And he turned me on to a lot of stuff. He turned me on to, like, Def Jux and, like, underground, like, hip-hop and stuff like that. He's a bit of music head. He worked at the radio station. Shout-outs to Evan if you're listening to this. And he also uh, one day showed up with a giant stack of comic books and plopped them onto um, the little table next to my comfy reading chair where I read my comic books in. And it was all 35 issues, (laughs) single issues of the Max. And I had remembered I had had a couple I had had like. You know, because uh, every image number one comic book was going to be worth a million dollars, of course, in uh, 20 years. I had the max number one. Uh, It was kind of baffled me back then. I mean, that was in fifth, sixth, that was maybe even fourth, fifth grade that I got that comic. I mean, and this is again, we'll, and we'll, we'll get into it. But, you know, this is a comic about sexual assault and mental health and, Um, trauma and all of these things that are not a superhero comic. So I was quite baffled uh, by it. And so in college, I went back and read them through and I had a 
wonderful, wonderful experience reading these comic books. And uh, really, personally, from beginning to end. So, uh, spoiler alert, or long story short, the comic uh, is largely believed to have fallen apart after about 13 issues or so. Around where, oddly enough, the animated series ends. Yes, as well. And, uh, you know, that the rest of it, Sam Keith, uh, the creator of it, even looks back on it feeling like, you know, it was not really the greatest uh, set uh, uh, or story arcs that happened after those first issues. And that, you know, fans feel like, you know, the whole thing kind of, he just maybe got bored with his own story. Maybe he just got a little too uh, up his own story's ass. Personally, I remember really enjoying it <laughs> from beginning to end. Like, I really liked it. I was like, yep, that's the story. And It's uh, the kind of story that if you were, in fact, a 19-year-old guy, like, you would be down with the dream logic. You would be down with right. the corridors it goes. 100%. Like, you are, a lo- you are strapped in with the ride in that, like, mindset. Down, down with the uh, redemption arc of a serial rapist, More, which is ooh, ridiculous. We'll get yeah, into that's, that. That's weird. But I, that I'm, was like, weird. trying to remember that, and I'm like, really? was <laughs> I forgot that the main evil character. We'll get, we'll get into that. We'll is, get into that. And then sort of stay tuned listeners for the rapist. Yeah, talk. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I mean, and it does deal in these subjects. And if these subjects are an issue for you, it's not like we're going to go into the dirty details of, of, of I the... did already make light of the subject in a really insensitive manner. So, <laughs> <laughs> but still like, we're not going to be going into some kind of Laura detail of any specific event, but yes, this is uh, definitely a topic of discussion when speaking towards the work of Sam Keith and the max, but yeah, I I remember really enjoying the whole thing all the way through and really was just very content at the fact that it ended after 35 issues. And I think one of my main things back then was I liked something in comic books that had a beginning, middle, and end, and it just ended and it was done. And this has a beginning, middle, uh, and then left-hand turn, and then up, up, upward angle, flip, double, double flip, back flip, and then into sort of what I guess one might describe as an ending. Uh, it is it is totally batshit insane. Although as we record this, uh, you know the Sam Keith has uh, kind of revisited the character, and then think the next issue of uh, that story is coming out in January. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, you've got the skinny more than me. I thought I had. Oh, all the dude, it is crazy. I'll send you. Info. I'll send you the links. But uh, in the past year, he's been trickling out issues of uh, Batman the Max. Arkham Dreams, yes. which involves... Okay, I did have that down. I thought that had already come uh, Like, kind of a... Uh, so far, it involves the Max and Batman kind of getting teamed up as uh, classic Batman villains are kind of uh, sent to the Outback thanks to a weird uh, mad scientist. The Outback, of course. Uh, the Outback... Uh, I guess well, we should describe what this... It, well, before we get right, into that... Before we get into that, I just want to highlight before we I throw the gush ball over to Jake. Ew. <laughs> I'm open. I'm open. Give me that squishy boy. Ooh, it's so wet. I want to get my hands on it. I'm going to throw up. It's so gross. <laughs> Ooh, it's sticky. Ooh, I want it. Ooh, I hate the ball. this. I don't want to ever play. Why would I have ever let you convince me to play a game called gush ball? I'll never understand the logic of that. I am so horrified at this Technically, moment. Technically, it's alive. <laughs> Hey, hey, I really like the Superman movie, and I really like my chemical romance. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, God. Uh, if anybody out there who makes plushies wants mm-hmm. to create a design for the Gush Ball and send it our way, we would be happy to add that to the merch store. Not only that, I will legally adopt it as my own child. <laughs> I, I'm really into uh, Dragon Ball Z. 
in my in my head it like has a little electronic bit in the middle so when you squish it it just says stuff like that it's so gross but it sounds slimy it's never not wet for some reason even we'd if have you to leave use it out some kind sun. of polymer yeah, yeah to really get that slime going <laughs> So, uh, but anyways, before I do that, I think, you know, besides the story and how interesting and unique the story and the characters are, especially during that time when everything was like, and this is, this is also dark and edgy, but this is like just working in psychology and all these philosophy and things like that in, in a way that like, um, let's say like wild cats wasn't really trying to savage dragon wasn't really exploring sort of the depths of of the mind and and how it works through trauma necessarily like the max was but also the art is awesome and i love you know it actually reminds me of i was thinking about it more um it is like because it's like well, Ren and Stimpy-ish in a way, it's like hyper-detailed mixed with just very simple, goofy cartoon looks. Um, it's almost as if, uh, like, the comic book Bone, it's almost as if you squished the cartoony and the hyper-detailed uh, art style together and in somehow into one uh, being with the Max and the different characters. Like, they are, they're at the same time super simple and cartoony and hyper-detailed and bizarre, depending on what part of the body you're looking at, depending on just, you know, and, and it and it There's just... There's a huge... I, I'm, I had trouble really putting my finger on what this art style is yeah. in the Max, and... And very uh, distorted, right? Yeah. Uh, I can, The closest I can get is it's like... Someone gave Bill Watterson like pure like uh, silo bison extract. Yeah, it very silo much silocybin. Si- what mushrooms? He yeah, gave, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just say shrooms. It's it's like crack on steroids. <laughs> am I right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I it, I could see that actually, and um, I just love it. I just love how distorted and bizarre everything just looks. So like I would never approach. Uh, and drawing a figure ever like anything that Sam Keith does everything is just feels so unique and so um just eye popping and just wonderful there just something about the art of of his work and and specifically in the max that just it really draws the viewer in so much and just and and oh the places he goes like the outback and the outback is um australia but not it's and it's where our character uh julia or julie julie winters julie thank you i was drawing a blank for a second there. it's where julie goes when essentially it's where she goes to be this jungle princess or jungle queen to kind of uh, uh fight back against the the trauma and the horrible things she suffered as a child and the max is like her spirit animal we'll get into all that but that just Everything happening in that space is so f- just fantastic and so wild and wonderful. And I just think it's a great goddamn comic book. And um, uh, yeah, did you and, and the t- and then on top of that, you've got uh, MTV oddities and like one of my favorite times in animation ever and the max and it's so insane to me that it was just like 13 issues of a comic book They're like yeah let's just immediately develop that into a, a full-fledged cartoon or a full-fledged animated series rather and it's really cool like it's really cool I mean it's very it's very much one-to-one almost like it's shockingly one-to-one yeah it's, it's having watched it as a kid and then reading the comics yeah it, it's uh you know and but i like it i think it's a really cool achievement and 
that whole time feels very underlooked. And we'll talk a little bit about, I wish there was more out there about the history of oddities and of um, I'm tr- I swear to television. God, all week I tried to hunt down someone from that era yeah, who actually worked on it. Really breaking down. I got down. Like, only one response from someone being like, I got an email from the guy who did some of the CG shots. <laughs> uh, like, uh, like remember in the gas station fight with Mr. Gone where they do that like cool 3D sweep? Uh-huh. I, I got an email from the guy that said that, that it was like, oh, it was basically contract work. You should talk to someone else. And I was like, fuck. Damn it. Yeah, because I feel like it's got to be a bit of, it feels, it seems like it was, it was the Wild West based on the type of content they were putting out. But either way, um, all it's just such a bizarre, interesting Time in comic books, an interesting work uh, in comic books, this this Max. Uh, Jake, so you just saw the the animated show uh, when you were younger, but you didn't read any of the comics. I did not read any of the comics, and uh, the thing is, I was 11 when this show came out, and it was intoxicating. First of all, like basic cable scheduling at the time. I never quite understood when MTV Oddities was on. It would just always kind of like appear and just flash my brain with all this crazy imagery that I had no idea how to process. And I was like 100% like, you know, this is an image comic. This is a, uh, you know, this is a superhero book, but it's not. It's not a superhero book. It's like the opposite of a superhero book. So the whole time I'm looking at this cool character who is literally like <laughs> the Hulk plus Wolverine yeah. plus yeah. like the most extreme Rob Liefeld, like crazy muscles ever. Yeah. And the whole time I'm just like, why, who is Camille Paglia? What are they talking about? <laughs> why the magical lump of clay? Like what the fuck is happening? What am I looking at? And you know, I was piecing together the story, you know, in, in flashes and fragments whenever I can get it. And the finale, when they get to the fucking rabbit under the bed and all of this was so intense and so like squicky that it stuck with me forever. It like haunted my memories. Yeah. And so when you said you wanted to do this as our topic, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess I'll revisit this uh, only to just have these just burned in like half nightmare images, like just flaming in my brain again mm-hmm. and um reading the comic of course it's it's it was shocking how much it's one to one reading the other 25 26 issues that followed is kind of amazing watching it uh kind of go places you didn't think just truly truly fantastic that this story is essentially uh about broken people and just depraved topics and depression and suicide and abuse and Everything from just like, uh, yeah, uh, growing up and the pain of uh, puberty, dealing with trauma and the ways that we go about it, uh, how we go about hurting others and how you like deal with having to hurt people. All this stuff is wrapped up with fucking grrr, yeah. grrr, muscle power, <laughs> shink, it's kinda like listen, it, bub. It's like a Trojan horse. It's, it's like the a, most Trojan horse. And and you have to rem- remember, too, because it's image comic books. And image comic books, and I think that's how I ended up getting into the Max, besides being, like, really into MTV back in the day. But also, um, you know, I was just on board with, I'm going to get whatever image comic number one I can find at the store when I go in. Because this whole new uh, brand is is fascinating to me and, like, on another level than this Marvel stuff and this DC stuff, at least in my kid opinion. It was like, everything's rad and everything's bigger and crazier. 
and edgier. Um, and of course, I collected a bunch of spawn. So uh, yeah, the expectations really are are you know on the same level of Savage Dragon, Wildcats, Shadowhawk, uh, the Pit. Do you remember the Pit? Uh, he's in the book. And spawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and spawn. And so having those expectations going in and just being slapped over the head with this like very complex very emotionally disturbing storyline is just and you know yeah i like my little mind i don't even think processed that that, that was on another level even it just was sort of like okay <laughs> uh, but in a way it was edgier than any of that other stuff because it was it was true edge it was like truly um testing the limits of storytelling and comics and things like that at that time. Yeah, I can't tell whether like... And it's it's snuck in because you're, you've got homeless... Like, I mean, Spawn no, was lo- back alleys and dirty, you know, homeless homeless people stuff going oh, on. It and, is absolutely born from that same Frank Miller, like, the city. Yeah. Uh, mold. Like, yeah. absolutely. The In fact, it's kind of amazing how in the book the duality between uh, the city and the outback Mm-hmm. The city, right out of a Frank Miller book, heavy shadows, heavy inks, uh, everything's dirty, everything's crowded, everything, all the buildings are looming like almost claustrophobically overhead. And then the outback is drawn in like soft colored pencil mm-hmm. and dry ink and like it's way like freer and almost empty. It's like the outback in the in the in the the alternate dimension is empty. It's it's an open field and the colors are so much softer. And that the the way that they played between both planes existing simultaneously and the game of the Max having no control over when he shifts is done great in the cartoon and great on paper. Like yeah. that that visual trick is done so well and it's incredibly effective. God, God damn. God damn. <laughs> ah, that's why I'm so glad we did this episode this week and let's let, let we're about to hop in right. starting with the the life what, the I, early I, life of Sam Keith. I I feel like we got to we got to break down what let's the max break, is. Let's break down. Okay, so. 15, 17 minutes into the show, let's break down what the max is. So the main character, the max, describe describe him. Uh, John, I think you did a great job with the Hulk meets Wolverine, big purple guy with like w- this weird, um, kind of protruding like teeth, but they're like pearly white, perfect weird protruding i don't even know how to describe that only the upper jaw only the upper jaw though and then um uh his hands he's got like big yellow hands with uh, spikes coming out of them no this the middle finger it's specifically the middle finger finger, it can bend like a like a finger can yeah yeah, he's always flipping people off right so that's the big those are the big spikes and then he's got like big yellow boots and he is purple he's in like a purple he looks like he is a superhero for sure but like like I kind of I used Ren and Stimpy earlier, but it's almost like Ren and Stimpy meets a superhero or something like that, which he, I guess would be Powder Toast Man, but whatever. Let's not get lost in the weeds here. He's rarely drawn like in a full heroic pose. Usually, mm-hmm. that's reserved for just the covers. Again, the Trojan Horse thing. Yeah, that like these kids and these comic book fans at the height of the Image Comics boom, at the height of the speculation boom, are like you know he looks like every other extreme hero. Yeah. But then in the actual book, he's usually like hunched over, curled up. He's kind yeah. of like this lump. And he is literally a homeless guy. Yeah. He's he is homeless. He is out in the streets. He's, he lives in a cardboard box. And he it works with I don't know, I guess works with is the right word, but and then there's Julie. She is a social worker. She's a counselor 
um, working with a freelance social worker, working with the homeless um, and the like. And so she gets in with Max. But really, Max is technically her spirit animal in the form of a rabbit. And um, what spoilers? I know. And uh, it should also be noted that uh, when we th- when you're thinking of a, a 90s comic character, the Max absolutely, especially uh, in like promo art, is filling that that uh, void. But uh, Julie is drawn almost like a Bloom County character. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. she's like uh, she's very cartoonish, very right. round. Uh, if you think of like those Jim Lee hard bodies, you know, with like the giant six pack and the bolt on like fake boob looking things, Julie is completely like you know they make a, she has a pooch, she has like flab, she has like a rounded face, rounded features. But she's also very like sexually male gazy, and she dresses very promiscuously. I guess it's, I would say yes. It's very weird how sometimes Sam will just be like, "No, it's sexy time now," but then the character will have a discussion being like. Are you judging me by the way I dress? Or like, oh, I bet you're getting off on this. Because right. like, there's that tension that kind of permeates all of Sam Keith's work, where his relationship with women, with uh, sex and gender, is incredibly complicated. And I yeah. don't know if we'll ever have enough uh, time to actually yeah, pet and we'll this try out. to get we'll try to at least place that a little bit and get to the bottom of that a little bit. But yeah, yeah. Key um. to this dynamic with uh, homeless superhero Max and Julie, uh, her, his freelance social worker, is that. In the Outback, this alternate dimension that the Max is continually teleported into beyond his control, uh, where there's like primordial creatures and monsters and dinosaurs and sky whales and little impy characters called Izzes. Julie is there, too, as the Jungle Queen. Yeah, she is the, <clears throat> she is the Jungle Queen. It's a way to feel powerful and in control after dealing with that trauma we mentioned before. But uh, at first, it's you don't know why she's there. And you don't know why she's drawn like a Frank Frazetta girl. Yes. And even the Max has like a plume of like, uh, like warrior hair. And he's like always in a prouder stance. And all like the grit and grime of as he's drawn as like bum Max is kind of washed away. And he usually stands taller. It's kind of it's it's a little bit weird. I feel like they could have done more with the fact that he's... um. Like in both worlds, but like only minorly different. But uh-huh. again, I feel it's all these weird little stylistic choices that Sam Keith did because this was just a an, uh, labor of love for him. Right. And then the speculator boom demanded that this become a more important holistic story. Yes. Then you have Mr. Gone, the uh, the villain of the comic and also the serial rapist we mentioned before. And narrator of the cartoon. Yes. And it's weird and he's also very like same with how the max looks like this badass superhero and in one second he'll act like a badass superhero and then the next second he'll act like a a a lost little puppy dog mr gone has all these moments of i'm the evil villain i'm in control and then two seconds later he's like totally uh pathetic and a loser and that that's constantly happening a lot especially with those two characters in this book and it's constantly that like you said like the bait and switch going on of like what who is actually confident in this book who is like actually the thing that they're projecting and what they you know they're never that they're always something vulnerable and and sad and mr (laughs) gone has a very weird elongated head he's kind of yeah like uh drawn like a a a tylenol quick dissolve gel cap you know what i mean um and in the initial issues he has this like yeah he has this like flowing kind of blue spawn cape that yeah, kind of yeah very spawny it's very spawny uh, glowing hands he's he's definitely you know Mister Gone kind of has the same 
he has the same energy as Doctor Strange with the mm-hmm. cape and the mystic powers, mm-hmm. and he's taunting, and he's like a physical match for the Max, and he's uh, doing like which was it was this was popular at the time. But if you want your uh, character to be edgy, he can't be a supervillain. He has to be a supervillain and Hannibal Lecter and like uh, Jeffrey Dahmer all rolled into one. So he's perverted. He's uh, he stalks and like harasses Julie. He's a uh, yeah. There's lots of like very lascivious like scenes where he's torturing women. But then yes, also he's got a pot belly and he likes uh, taking bubble baths. And as the series goes on, especially after the so-called cliff, the series gets deep into his thing. So what we have are it's all these these false fronts. We have the 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 sexy girl, you know, the the Lois Lane. We have the hulking hero, the brooding hero, and we have the the nefarious, omnipotent, omniscient. A supervillain who knows everyone's secrets and as more and more gets revealed it's all just like oh these are all just really broken people yes everybody is just a disaster and then there's sarah which ends up becoming the most important character in the book kind of but like <laughs> she's a moot she's basically daria in the first part of the story and then as uh sam keith kind of gets more uh lost in the woods she she becomes more and more important mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. in the later in the books they do time jumps they do all these kind of false ends and then they, he comes back uh with more story Th- entire threads get picked up and dropped like it was uh, a lot of fans got frustrated but sam keith's art and sam keith's uh you know storytelling style were truly unique and people were like genuinely in for the ride, especially in an era, you know, this ran from, uh, it was a 93 to 98. Yeah. So this was an era where like these kind of stories were not told in no, mainstream comic books. Not at all. And comic books were big at this time too. It was the boom. Yeah. It was like, well, by, by 98, it was like actually kind of, kind of dead. Da- dead. Yeah. But uh, this was, this was at the height. This was second generation image, uh, superhero, Meaning they they had already put out their first line, which was Spawn, Savage Dragon, Young Bloods. This was a nut. This was second generation, and it really did stick out like a sore, big yellow middle finger for sure. <laughs> and it's, that's yeah, and and it makes sense. The guy we're about to talk about, he seems fascinating, and he seems uh, like the kind of guy. Yeah, you could just see this is the guy that would make this. He's a, he's a true artist. He's he's. I don't even understand. I read about a, a career like this too, and I'm just like, how do you even? How do you be this weird and get to like make covers for Marvel and do all this crazy shit, you know, and have the career that you had essentially and Listen, still have, and he's still doing stuff. Sam Keith, Drew Wolverine, super cool, <laughs> and he did that thing. I, every time it's gotten to the point where it's abstracted to the point yeah. of being nonsensical. But the first time I saw Sam Keith art of uh, Wolverine where he actually showed like the weird eye wings, you know, on Wolverine's mask, the uh-huh. pointy dumb things that uh-huh. then his hair also looks like, and it never made sense, whatever that it showed the actual like spandex, like polyester fabric on the mask fraying and like spinning out wildly at the tip, the yes, way that it would I'm looking if he at it was right now. Yeah. Like if a, if an actual indestructible killing machine, had to wear a spandex mask, how it would actually look. Yeah. Blew my fucking mind. Yeah. Those Nightfall covers when, uh, you know, when they brought Bane into, th- uh, into, you know, to break Batman's back back in the 90s. Sam Keith did all these iconic covers where Batman was like warped and twisted and, uh, you know, Bane was this like 
muscle monster with abs that like stretch down from his penis through his butthole up <laughs> back through his chest. Yeah, it's just incredibly dis- it's it's very it's like body dysmorphia. Like it's so But it ju- it just so cranked wild. up all the things that like you all the things that superhero artwork pretended it wasn't about and cranked it to a million and it was intoxicating. Nobody drew like this guy. Mm-hmm. So that's why a weirdo like him got a career. <laughs> Because yeah. he drew fucking being weird. just so unique, yeah. just being so fascinating, and and yeah, understanding I guess some bizarre basics of human psychology of what makes us the our, our eye drawn to something. I feel like so. Sam Keith, born in 1963, he started drawing and creating comics at eight years old without really knowing it. Keith said, "When I was a kid." I used to draw, even before I picked up a comic, I was drawing these little stories on three by five index cards. My mom bought a pack, and when she brought them home, the only thing I could think to do with them was draw a picture and write little words underneath each one. Then I'd string them into a story. And he didn't actually discover comics until he was around uh, the age of 12, as there was not a comic store really in his area. He said, I could never get them in order, uh, which actually, I I really connect to this. <laughs> I used to do this too. <laughs> I mean, that's what you do when that's you're a kid. You like, you can't get to a you can't necessarily get to a comic book store once a month much less have the money to buy all of the comics that you want in uh, every every month i oh, he said in, before we continue it is absolutely vital that we not neglect this detail sam keith spelled k-i-e-t-h is so weird what the fuck Watch someone be like, it's Kieth. <laughs> he said, I'd just get an issue of a comic and then I'd wander in a couple months later and get issue five and then issue seven. Whatever struck my fancy, I, it never occurred to me to try to get them in order and how much more enjoyable they'd be if they were all read in order. He liked the uh, typical wish fulfillment style stuff. Uh, he said, people running around in their underwear and seeing, uh, seeming not to have the problems I had. I mean, the metaphor of running around in long underwear and seeming to have the taste and maturity of a kid, but powers far beyond an adult, was the first thing that attracted me to them. It was quite a bit later that I discovered alternative comics in the in 1980s, comics that had a little more maturity of, in them, such as, or maturity to them, rather, sorry, such as Love and Rockets, Nexus, American Flag, and Cerberus. Can you t- t- speak towards any of the, I, I really want to read Love and Rockets. I don't I, know where to begin, though. I mean, it's been running for decades That's at this point. That's the thing. But... So, like, what do I even, listeners, let me know. <laughs> where should I start? I'd like to pick up some. Uh, I want to get some indie comics in my life. Just the uh, the self published in you know as kind of sparked by uh, the movements that uh, we covered in our Crumb episode. Uh, you know, there's people using the medium of comics to tell more human stories, or in the case of Cerberus, a magical aardvark. Yeah, or Cerebus. Or Cerebus, what I say? Cerberus, because I said Cerberus. Oh, fine. It's the same, same, whatever. Well, the other one's a three headed dog, and the other one's a talking aardvark. Oh yeah, I never, I never read it, but like, yeah. Yeah, I've always been fast interested in it, though. I always pick it up, and I'm like, should I get into this? And then and, I just look at the sheer amount of money I would have to spend in order to get into this, because there are a lot of Cerebus trades. Yeah. Uh, and then Amer- yeah, I know American Flag's like a political superhero thing, where I think it's like the president is like a superhero or something like that. And I, I was looking at that for a little bit, but things like that. 
He said, when I went down to the end of a comic show, the colors stopped and they started being black and white. Then it was pretty fringy. You were down there right next to the underground and you could never and you never knew what you were going to get into. And that's where all the interesting stuff was come to find out. It would make a lot of sense that he would be drawn to the indies as the Max feels so much like an indie comic uh, down to its very DNA. Weirdly enough, I loved finding this fact out. His cousin... Oh yeah, how interesting! And that he co-wrote it. I should I should stop teasing our audience. His cousin was David Feiss, and he created Cow and Chicken. Uh, he was four years older than Keith, and he ended up apparently Keith co-wrote the pilot script for Cow and Chicken, which I think is totally fascinating. Also gives him maybe a little bit of an edge into what what it is to write an animated. TV show script. There's so. actually um, a episode of the show uh-huh. that is uh, done in uh, his Feiss's, uh art style, where he's sucked into a cartoon world, and it looks like an episode of Cow and Chicken. Believe the Crappen is that is that? Yeah, that? Oh God, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I I could not find the story, but uh, Feiss ended up working uh, on Ren and Stimpy, uh, the first show to. Uh, one of the first shows to be produced by Rough Draft Studios, mm-hmm. which then produced the MTV show. So there's clearly some kind of connection that helped. Like It can't be just happenstance. Right. That connection uh, is there. And so you've got Feist and also Feist's sister, Drew, and they were, quote, like brother and sister to me. And I think really it gave him his wings when it came to illustration. Not just him, though. Also, Sam's father drew and painted. Uh, And so drawing was just a very standard activity. I feel like so many times we talk about these manga artists, these comic book artists starting out, they're alone in their basement drawing, and they're the weird ones in the family and yada, yada, yada. Well, this one, it seemed like it was a family of artists and a family that uh, were a little bit more open to uh, that kind of work at least he said so uh, you are Sam Keith said rather so you always had to try twice as hard just to stay up you know everybody was older than me and they drew better it was like well drawing isn't going to get me any attention <laughs> so and it's funny like it reminds me more of when I hear about well I've been watching that country music documentary lately so it's a lot in that but you hear about singers starting out or musicians starting out and they grew up in a family of other musicians and they were taught how to harmonize at a young age and all this kind of stuff it sounds like he had a similar experience but for drawing okay so this is where it gets a little uh, interesting i don't want to say bizarre i don't want to judge this because i mean he's still married to the woman and but of course it's it seems you know like it was so definitely at least illegal things were happening uh so what you have to understand (laughs) is uh he was born in the 60s which means (laughs) his parents were hippies kids the 60s were very wild times okay you had uh, dogs dressing up as cats you had uh you know doobies you had a a, a music the doobie brothers i mean there was the cocaine Mm -hmm. was you know actually it was more about weed but either way children sit down and let grandpa hold a lot of things were being brought into question a lot of uh (laughs) things that were taken for granted were being uh challenged and uh man man it's like he man it's like the man's man uh i'm just gonna say reading sam keith's work especially a lot of his later work and uh, even a lot of stuff in the mask um wow i just did it in the max somebody stop him oh man 
Um, what's her name in that movie? Though? Cameron Diaz. Woo! How can you forget? Smoking. Ding dong, ding dong. The holiday shopping season is here, and this year, your gift can start next year's good habit with Quip. Quip is something that's sure to put a smile on everyone's mouth because it's dental care they'll actually want to use every day. That's why Quip is the perfect, thoughtful, and practical gift. With an electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and toothpaste all intentionally designed to make good habits simple. The Quip electric toothbrush has sensitive sonic vibrations and a timer with 30-second pulses to guide your routine and the Quip floss dispenser has pre-marked strings so you can always use the right amount. And that is huge for me because I'm always, A, yanking way too much floss out of the dispenser like a psycho. And also, um... I never used to brush for really the proper amount of time, and now I do with these 30-second timers. Plus, Quip delivers brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months. I'm so psyched to get my next refill. I had no idea they were doing floss now. That's awesome. Join over 3 million happy customers, including myself, and check everyone off your gift list right now with Quip. Just go to getquip.com wizard to save on gift sets and to get your first refill free with a refill plan. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash wizard getquip.com slash wizard get yours today y'all anyway um <laughs> a lot of the things where he's kind of lingered on these questions and kind of goes into like uh you know uh the duality of man and woman and like what does it mean to be a protector and can you know what it's definitely someone that like grew up in the 60s and 70s because for a lot of people now in the modern age, they're like, why are you still, like, we have, like, our understanding, like, why are you still so confused, dude? <laughs> so, long story long, Sam Keith meets his future wife at just 15 years old. She was 30 or 35, actually. I think she was 35. 35. The, uh, in his, so he talks about this, like, he kind of dances around it. Um, at the time, they knew it was illegal. He, his uh, parents had had a very contentious divorce, and he was alienated from both his father, who he described as kind of this uh, Mr. Spock kind of cold person uh, that, like, he never got his approval of. And his mother, who was also, like, conflicted, uh, he felt distant from them. In the weird graphic novel-y thing, uh, miniseries My Inner Bimbo, which he released in the 2000s, uh, it seems very, very, very likely that uh, the two main characters are based on his relationship with his wife. Um in that book, it's described that uh, his mother took him to, like, a hippie party uh, and, like, he just started talking to his future wife, who was a friend of his mother's, and the two just connected. The two just, like, really just had this, like, all-night conversation, and he became, like, kind of freaked out at how close he had become with her. She also, this 35-year-old one, was also kind of like, oh, you're like this old soul. Like, I can't believe like I'm connecting like this, but we can't do anything about it. And as like they kept meeting and kept talking and they just kept getting closer and closer and hippies, man. Like when he was like, <laughs> Hey mom, can I move in with your friend who I'm in love with? She was like, sure. Yeah, They had, I mean, it's from all accounts that he, you know, it was, it was consented and permission was given. So he moves in with her. That He's being said, the obsession he has with, Differences in age and romances in stuff like Zero Girl, I mean, even in the Max, and sexual assault, yeah, and, and yeah, uh, and just the power dynamics between men and women. Uh, it's very clear that like 
he had a very atypical experience and yeah. it kind of cast a shadow on his perception of the world. And so uh, he moves in with her and as he put it, he kind of essentially grew up. And so apparently he fails his way into comics as he describes it. Uh, he tries and fails at getting a graphics job. He fails at getting a chef job. He tries at one point to work as a guitar teacher. None of these things are working out. So after that, he put together a portfolio and took it, started taking it to conventions and had a really tough time with that. I didn't have a portfolio case, and I couldn't afford those nice leather ones that everybody had. So my mom had an old orange container that had once had x-rays in it that was made of cardboard, and it was just original art size. I'd stand in line with this x-ray box and show my portfolio. I'd pull out my pages, and all the editors would make jokes. What are you going to show me, your x-rays? I'd be like, no, this is it. I remember burning with shame that I didn't have at least a decent something to pull them out of. But that did not matter uh, because, according to Sam, he had years of work ahead of him before he got good enough to get gigs and to unlearn his early bad habits, uh, such as trying to draw like John Byrne, just trying to be like his idols. John Byrne, he did like John the Phoenix Byrne, by the Saga. Way, yeah, the most middle of the road, yeah. iconic stock. <laughs> Yes. Like, amazing at it. Like, Opposite so of good, Sam Keith guy. <laughs> so good at stock comic book drawing that, like, he almost, like, elevated it to a whole new level. Yeah. But still, the most stock <laughs> comic book art style you could ever imagine. So it just took him a long time to find his own voice as an artist, his own, his own, uh, or, or his own look, in his case, as an artist. He was also highly self-critical, highly uh, obsessive, and uh, would... Um, even on the gigs that he did get, he was slow and would constantly throw out like a week of work to redraw pages from scratch. Yeah, I like I like his quote here about it. So it's like, how long did it take you to get in? Oh, about 10 years. What? I'm like, no, no, I'm a slow learner and I'm an idiot. But you, you can probably get in in two or three years, at which point they go, okay, whew. And I think that that is just goes to show that, first of all, I want to highlight here that I know that this is true as a stand-up comic uh, or as, you know, a sketch writer or anything like that. It clearly seems to be true here as an illustrator. But if you are starting out and trying to get into whatever art form you're trying to get into, really that first whatever it takes, two years to ten years or whatever it is, that first bit of time is spent finding your own voice. It's You essentially always start out copying the people you idolize until you finally tap into what makes you know you you and and you know what what is your style and what is you know deep within you your personality based art output and then you can start making moves as a careerist and that sort of thing and it's just it's interesting though how the most important thing is to focus on that and sometimes it'll take it takes some people a year and it takes other people 10 and it's just gonna that's just the way it is and i think that that's a very fascinating element of what it seems like every artist goes through when they are first first starting out so he gets his first big gig at the age of 21 as the inker of matt wagner's mage for image comics as well as for a comic called fish police which is a noir story about fish uh it's one of those weird indie books that it like looks awesome it's yeah think of yeah uh they, it had a tv special or something back in the 90s oh it's, cool uh because after the teenage mutant ninja turtles boom 
all the weird indie like it's in the same vein as Eastman and Laird back in the day. Uh, animals doing crime fighting in a weird noir setting that like you wouldn't expect animals to be in. <laughs> and uh, there's all I could tell from my research is that one of the characters in the cartoon of Fish Police was a sexy fish lady that warped people's brain and created a bunch of furries the way that <laughs> 90s cartoons seems to do. <laughs> so uh, so th those two gigs are great, but then he ends up having years of rough, tough times and rough, tough gigs. Yeah, but then he nails a, he nails a gig that is almost iconic. Hold on, I think you know what you're, what uh, what I'm gonna say. I am, but I have a really fun quote about everything sucking from him first. Oh, go for it. Okay, so before he lands this really cool gig that we're about to get to, that we've I'm sure we talked about uh, I don't in think... an episode four. You don't think we did, we didn't mention this? I, I mean, we mentioned this series. I love how much we're toying with our listeners this episode, building things up, talking about things, not revealing them. <laughs> oh, the gush ball is getting slimier. Oh, <laughs> Love snorks. <laughs> yes, I knew the Gushball loved snorks. So these terrible gigs for DC. He said, the editor and writer of the book of the book, Roy Thomas, called me up and said, basically, kid, you're bad. You'll never work in comics again, and you need to quit while you're behind. These moments were in my mind as much as any of the seeming successes. I mean. It was a bunch. It was built on a bunch of failures. Everything I've done is built on all these bad anatomy bodies I've drawn and all these bad stories I've tried to write. I mean, you stick around for 15 to 20 years and you get an awful lot of failures that you can climb up on top of. I can't think of any magic words or anything to tell people out there that would get them through it other than when they're suffering through a really bad story with really bad art every single person that i've ever admired has told me that they've been there with the stench and uh, so here we go first stage of the artist trying to start out and get a career finding your voice second stage fail 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 <laughs> fail, fail 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 in that voice until you finally you know succeed and excel because you've built up enough failure to become a better artist, right? And that's when he gets the really cool gig. In 1988, Neil Gaiman writes an eight-issue outline for a new series called The Sandman. Based oh, what? What? <laughs> Preludes and Nocturnes! <laughs> Say what? You were, you, were, you were the Sandman fan, right? I never actually read them. Uh, I like Except how for, Sandman like, fan that sounds, but yes, I've read all of them. Um, I really enjoy them. Not enough to get a tattoo on my back, Marcus Parks, <laughs> of last podcast on the left fame. But I've, I, yeah, I, uh, again, in college, it's kind of funny. I, I didn't even realize I was reading and I was looking at more Sam Keith art probably too during that time. But I was while, by reading Preludes and Nocturnes. But the whole thing, yeah, I, re I really, really love Sandman. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely great. It took me a little while, I will say, to like, really get into it mm -hmm. uh, especially with that beginning art is real crazy so mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense that that was sam keith and um also though just to kind of just to kind of get how the way that this kind of story will flow and move and it's a little more abstract does this sound familiar the max mm -hmm. like <laughs> but yes uh love the sandman so one of the most iconic runs in com in comic book history vertigo elevating the art form hot goth death girl all these things i think in the max there's like a there is a line where it's like what do you think death's some hot goth chick yeah um <laughs> but uh you know legendary like one a cultural shifting point for the entire medium and sam keith 
fucking hates this gig and wants to get kicked off as soon as possible. So he gets the gig by showing the outline to editor Karen Berger, who suggested Sam Keith be the series artist. He pencils the first five issues, uh, like I said, w- which was Preludes and Nocturnes, that story arc. And then he quit. He said it was like Jimi Hendrix playing with the Beatles. <laughs> so he did recognize that it was very good, but he was like, this is your good and I need to go make my good, essentially. So after that, he ends up floating around different projects for Dark Horse and Marvel, including drawing uh, Incredible Hulk number 368 and several covers for Marvel Comics Presents. These are iconic. These are These are, if you're in front of a computer right now, Google, Sam Keith, Marvel Comics Presents. They'll kind of blow your mind. They're really amazing. I loved how he wrote, he would be like, some kids would write in being like, I love this. And other kids would write in being like, quit fucking with my thing. Because like, this is Wolverine is in the wrong shape. What are you doing? My life is chaos right now. I'm a kid growing up. This is my one gold standard thing in my life. Stop fucking with it. I thought that was so funny that that's the connection he made to like, but it's true. I remember at that time too, I wouldn't want to be too, thrown too far off on on that sort of stuff. Like I wanted Wolverine to be Wolverine. It's those covers that stick with you. It's oh, like yeah. especially when you're reading a boring old normal book and there's an ad for like uh I, again I keep referring to the Nightfall covers. Like it was insane. It was yeah. like it was it was like he was drawing on a different plane of existence. Yeah, it's so cool. And especially that Wolverine one you were describing earlier. Also the Wolverine one where he's like holding onto the cliff mm-hmm. and dangling off it. And he's got, he draws rags better than like anybody <laughs> I know. Just like rags coming off of a person. It's Him and so McFarlane, funny. it was a very rag era. Yeah, it was very raggy. Well, they're all rags out that era. So that same, so he had, yeah, he had trouble sticking to anatomy. He had trouble with faces. He had trouble with a lot of things because he was self-taught and kind of going learning as he was going but that same extreme kind of uh unorthodox kind of adherence to character model made him stand out it made him a hot commodity so in the early 90s when uh a famously botched effort to unionize or renegotiate uh contracts with artists uh blew up in face in people's faces at marvel and led to the uh, creation of Image Comics, and then the Image Comics boom, and the Speculator boom, and all this stuff. Sam was one of the guys that, you know, was just around when Jim Lee was like, hey, we're fucking doing this, you coming with or not? (laughs) And, like, if Sam Keith was working at a different company, if he was attached to a different book, if, you know, there's so many circumstances. He was not a, like, he was not an agitator. He was not, like, one of the guys that was, he wasn't even, like, as big of a superstar, Mm -hmm. really, as Jim Lee or Todd McFarlane or Rob Liefeld. He was just, he snuck into that Marvel Comics Presents gig because Todd McFarlane had just backed out of it, uh, essentially. And uh, so he, So they needed a, Todd, a new rag guy. Yes, they needed a rag guy. And he is actually, yeah, like he has owes Todd McFarlane a lot, I think, for his career because of all this stuff. Uh, he said, I worked at Marvel doing covers and hoping whoever was drawing Wolverine would have a heart attack and I'd get the gig, but no luck. I got to know Jim Lee from Marvel, and when he left, he called me, and that's how that started. Most of the Image guys came from Marvel or DC. Jim Lee, of course, yeah, one of the founders of Image Comics, all of whom came from Marvel or DC. They were just frustrated at the way that freelancers were treated, at the way that uh, they were compensated. And so they ended up, uh, it was called, it was referred to as the Exodus. We talked a lot about it in our Spawn episode, if you want to hear more about that whole time in Image Comics. Uh, Lee was known for his run on uh, X-Men and Marvel, for Marvel, 
and um, Liefeld was on X Force, and Liefeld was on X Force. Um, but he said it wasn't. You know, he he didn't have the same attitude. I feel like they had. He he even uh, spoke in an interview uh, of that. I never left them DC in a snit. I didn't do the max as a statement against Marvel or DC. I just wanted to do a book. And at its peak, Image was a machine. They held their own meetings, and as long as I produced, that's the magic little egg everyone expects in this business, then they just left folks like me pretty much alone. So that is how he is enabled to create. Also, he's allowed to keep his characters, which was a revolutionary thing. Which then ends up becoming a giant clusterfuck because how do you have a shared comic book universe yes. where every creator owns their own characters? Yeah, Cut funny. to Neil Gaiman's crazy lawsuit with Todd McFarlane. Right. Cut to even the fact that when they finally made um, uh, the Max into a cartoon series, uh, Pit and Savage Dragon had to get like chopped out and kind of written around mm. because they're like they're there. You mm-hmm. can't ignore that they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, of the initial design and uh, concept. For the max. Oh, did you did you find these? Because I have them. Oh, uh, what do you mean? Uh, so in um, I just have a good, good quote from Sam Keith about. So it. in <laughs> Wizard Magazine, they had a pack in which was um, uh, the max issue one half, and it uh, recapped a story that was I think from uh, an image uh, anthology book called Darker Image, which was kind of the pilot, and a bunch of uh, an, a short interview with uh, Sam Keith where he kind of. Um, uh, how do I how do I put this? Lies lies about where he thinks the story is going. Um, he claimed that there were secret clues in the Max trading cards yeah. that Image was putting out, uh, but there weren't. There 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 weren't. In the interview, Wizards like, so what plans do you have for the Max? And uh, Keith answers, there's talk of involving Youngblood characters with them arriving and trying to find out if he should join Youngblood. <laughs> uh, but in the hallucination, he sees them as a warring tribe, and each of them have different animal heads. That's uh, cool. They're talking about uh, the Max, how they might make a cartoon out of it. I don't know. Rob Liefeld has all this stuff covered. Uh, but in the uh, back of the in the back few pages of this like weird little extra, they have the pages from his sketchbook. And the Max looks completely different. He uh, I'm handing I'm handing you my, my magic uh, thing. So first of all, he has a lower jaw and a chin uh-huh. that extends even further than the upper jaw. He has this weird um, 1930s fighter pilot thing going on mm-hmm. with like a you know a flying cap and goggles and a scarf. Uh, he's constantly drooling. The Max is drawn as a drooling like Hulk. He has a pot belly. He looks completely different than his final form. And uh, through revisions and through kind of uh, the more that he starts like getting obsessed with the outback, he kind of focuses on this pan tribal kind of uh, of uh, design because. You know, it's the max involves. First of all, it's his mask is like basically an African like mask. He lives in the outback, which is kind of riffing on Aborigines like dream time or the dreaming alternate reality. But he's also a spirit animal, which is American indigenous legend. He's just a clusterfuck of like right. cool tribal shit, which as someone who lived in the 90s, I have to tell you, was in. Yeah. Keith said it looks pretty much like the Hulk with his purple pants stretched over his whole body, pretty much. He's pretty much an excuse to draw a circle and a triangle and add some arms. It just came from doodles and a sketchbook of jungle foliage and some guy running around. The story literally came from sketchbook notes and hopefully didn't suffer as a result of that. William Messner Loeb's, who's known for his work with DC on Flash and Wonder Woman, among others, scripted issues 1 through 15. 
So this is a thing where um, his involvement is kind of uh, fuzzy. You don't really get a quite, um, you know, it's hard to say, like, what's the difference between a script writer and a story writer? Uh, but, for example, one of the most iconic moments in the Max uh, is uh, the Mr. Gone uh, gas station fight. I Fuck it, I, I'll spoil this. He grabs what he thinks is a hostage, but is actually a CPR dummy. And the Max just, like, punches a hole in its head. <laughs> And Mr. Gunn, who was previously like a cool, nefarious wizard character, uh, just starts going, you, you killed my hostage. <laughs> you killed my hostage. And like that, that, so the you killed my hostage line is was written by William Messner Lopes. Because mm. so, like as Keith writes it, it's just like, and then he freaks out because he's like, he thinks, but. So, you know, the, the scripting was a concrete step. It well, did add to the it's voice. Maybe no coincidence to the comic purportedly sort of fell apart after around issue 15 is also maybe <laughs> a testament to this guy uh, William Messner loves and he ended up, he was like a real workhorse for the comics industry he wrote on a bunch of series he worked for Marvel for DC it is an unfortunate tragedy of the way these comics are written and and how royalties work that uh you know it's a lot of work for hire there's no retirement plan there's no you know uh there's no pension, and uh, right now, if you go to GoFundMe.com slash Bill Messner Lobes, uh, you can help him pay for the fact that uh, his wife is sick and they are technically homeless. There you go. So please check that out. I will, after we're done recording, I have this tab open. I'm going to donate $50. Nice. Uh, you know, try and do what you can. Like, it's just, it's weird how these these important people in the history of our culture just kind of get... Tossed aside, but every little bit helps. Um, so this comic book ends up getting a giant cult following, and I was definitely one of the most people that really appreciated this book. Keith said, nobody was expecting it. I wasn't expecting it. It grew into something that I don't think I'll be able to completely walk away from. It completely overwhelmed me. I don't think it was just my stories. People were going through stuff, sometimes emotional, heavy stuff, and they would gravitate to this book. They would talk about it in the letter columns. Me and my wife often felt like it was beyond our control. We'd get these heavy letters from people going through stuff, and they would write to each other and talk to each other, and it would just seem like the max was the place they happened to be working it out. He even said that the letters column was the best part of the book each month because there was this community that was forming before the internet this is pre pre internet community forming around a comic book based off of people just sending letters in connecting deeply to these stories about vulnerable sad troubled people dealing with the issues that they have dealing with the traumas that they've had in their past i think that's a, a beautiful thing and uh, so this comic runs, as we stated, for 35 issues, starting in 1993, with each issue plotted and illustrated by Keith. It, it, he felt that issues 1 through 20 made sense. 20 through 30 were disappointing, but with, but with interesting moments. And 30 through 35 as a chaotic mess until the plug had to be pulled. And the plug was indeed pulled at one point. I realized when it was time to quit. Keith said, I didn't know what I was doing anymore. I was clearly restless, but afraid to quit. But it was time. So the comic ends, uh, and but the Max lives on with MTV oddities. All right, so MTV, 
established an animation department in the late 1980s, making a bunch of shorts to be aired as bumpers during its programming. That's how it started. And I remember those. They were fun. It was really cool. It was, like, really unique and weird. There'd just be these little, like, crazy animated moments throughout. Oh, man, I miss old MTV. It was so good. They just played music videos, and they played weird music videos, and it was really cool, and I miss it. And they had Liquid Television ruled, and, like, this is my okay boomer moment, but like you guys don't understand how good that was because it was really good. And like y'all, y'all, you know, the 90s rule and you guys drool. Nah, music videos are fine. Music videos are literally <laughs> yeah, the most popular thing on music YouTube. Music videos are great, but I just, I have to go seek them out now. And it used, they used to just happen at me. And I really liked that because then I would discover all this really great new stuff. Now I go on YouTube and I kind of, get lost in the same circle of music videos because it's harder to anyways whatever dude just like come on mtv guys come on get it together so starting in late 1991 mtv launches the series liquid television which served as an animation showcase for mtv and launches the show's Beavis and Butthead and Aeon Flux. And Beavis and Butthead, again, was super cool. You guys don't understand how good we had it back then with Beavis and Butthead. Uh, a subcategory of Liquid Television was... I, I sure hope Mike Judge came out on his feet after that. Yeah, I really hope it worked out for him. A subcategory of Liquid Television was MTV's Oddities, whose first show was The Head. Remember The Head? I love The Head. You guys don't understand how good we had it. Uh, weird <laughs> fact... We're never going to do with a head episode. I know there probably but, isn't enough there, but I love. But the we head. might actually end up talking about the head in a future episode because the creator of the head also developed a celebrity deathmatch. Oh, okay, isn't that, that makes sense. That makes sense, actually. Like in terms of humor. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of weird how the two D to claymation style kind of held over. So if you don't know about the head, it's about a guy who wakes up with a giant cranium that holds a purple alien named Roy, who is there to save the planet from a sinister alien. And it was really weird, and it was just so, yeah. I remember, like, being almost afraid of MTV animation back then because it was just so off the wall. Oh, between Aeon Flux, like, weird, like, like, Aeon Flux, I don't, I I understand she's, like, a quote-unquote 90s sex symbol, but if you actually watch that weird Chung animation, it is very gross. It's very upsetting. So the second show to air as a part of Oddities was The Max. The Max TV series covers the first 11 issues, as well as a couple of side issues and includes the introduction of Julie, Max, Mr. Gone, and Sarah, but did not get into their origins very much. The animation, much like its source material, constantly changes stylistically with high-detail images mixed with super cartoonish ones, and there is, as you mentioned before, some CGI and live action even mixed in. Um, Watch... The fact that I watched this as a kid on a CRT television is a crime. You yeah. can find um, high it's quality free. digital copies. It's free on, I think it's even free on like MTV's website. You can just watch the stuff. You probably torrented it anyway, Jake, because you I didn't might even have... try to find the legal way to Marie watch it. Marie bought it on uh, Amazon Prime where oh, awesome. it was in super HD. Oh, and nice. The fact that it's this cool. level of animation, because Sam Keith's designs are not easy to animate. They just fucking muscled through it mm-hmm. with raw art power. And this was an early uh, project by Rough Draft Studios that uh, since became famous for animating like uh, The Simpsons and Family Guy and basically uh, Gravity Falls. Basically, every quality cable anim- and and uh, television animation you can think of, uh, they were one of the first studios to like kind of uh, get built out of Korea. Um, and it's a very, I swear to God, if any of these assholes answer my emails, we will interview them and we'll learn the real shit about this. Um, oddly enough... Uh, uh, Keith talks about the show 
um, in issue 11 of the Max in the letters page, uh, they finally uh, kind of uh, they kind of break it down. Uh, the MTV guys, you can't call them suits because they actually wear T-shirts and sneakers, are John Andrews and Abby Turkule. Uh I make fun of MTV a lot and will continue to do so, but John and Abby are the guys who wanted the Max to be on MTV in the first place. They've worked hard to make sure the cartoon preserves the cool parts of the book, and this problem and this project would not have happened without John Andrews. In fact, I've seen uh, projects drift away from creators, and John makes sure to make uh, it doesn't happen with the Max. And uh, they've even been talking to the Pez folks. Maybe we'll have a Max Pez dispenser. Nice. So if you want to check out the Max in comic book form, a re-release was put out. It's called the Max Maximized. It was a recolor. Oh, wait. Can I say one more thing about the cartoon? Sure. The cartoon was uh, pretty weird, uh, but uh, the voice cast, actually, there's just two interesting things about the voice cast. Uh, number one is the voice of Mr. Gone. Uh, was like this anime guy who was just basically has all these weird like bit roles and um, he I don't understand like how he was so good because he is the crux of this of the show like the 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 weird dripping with malice that is Barry Stiegler's performance is kind of insane Uh, and the voice of Julie Winters is actress and uh, author named Glynis Talkin who um Worked on a bunch of Blizzard games. She was the original oh. voice of Kerrigan. Mary, can you play a clip of uh, Julie Winters from the Max cartoon? My mind wanders across all the lonely, misguided people in this dark city. It's wet, dark and wet. Full of people who are experts at avoiding reality. And now, side by side, uh, one of the Kerrigan voice clips from the first StarCraft. This is Kerrigan. We've neutralized the Protoss, but there's a wave of Zerg advancing on this position. We need immediate evac. Weird, right? <laughs> what a weird resume this lady has. So if you'd like to read the Max comic book, you might want to check out the Max Maximized. It was a recolored and remastered edition of the comic books published in 2013. I think the original coloring is a little bit better. Really? Okay, cool. Yeah, it is in seven volumes. They put some things that were out of continuity into the original intended order. There's very small tweaks and changes to all of it. So you might want to get it that way. And then afterwards, Sam Keith takes some time off once the match. Uh, if you want to see one of the most harrowing depictions of male victims of sexual abuse you've ever uh, read in your entire life, you pick up the later issues of the match. Yeah, absolutely. So the Max ends. He's exhausted. He takes some time. Out. He wants to pursue some other projects, passion projects, things like that that are away from comic books. But he does come back with zero. Oh, I'm sorry. I have to describe uh, one thing. Uh, there was a uh, like Anna, there was some kind of retrospective panel in like 2013 that Sam Keith uh, sat in on, and um, one of the things he did in his downtime because he still had cool nerd cachet was uh, he actually made a film called Take It to the Limit in the year 2000 for uh, Roger Corman, <laughs> and uh, it was kind of this like outdoor adventure like climbing movie. Uh, obviously low budget bizarre and he tells a story about how you know he made the movie uh kind of you know moved on and he finally saw it in like the bargain bin of a video store and there was like a little gold sticker on it that said that it had won the gold medal from the american forestry service for uh you know uh depictions of wilderness or whatever and he calls roger corman famous schlocky b-movie producer and it's like why didn't you tell me and corman's like tell you what he's like why didn't you say that our film won this this award from the American Forestry Service? And Roger Corman's like, 
you fucking idiot. We made that up. <laughs> <laughs> so then he gets back into comic books after that with Zero Girl about a high school student's attempts to start a relationship with her guidance counselor. Some parallels there a little bit with his relationship, even though he does say it is a very different dynamic and it's not super based on his situation with his wife. She also has a relationship, the character in Zero Girl, with shapes. Circular objects help her, and squared objects hurt her, and also her feet create a bunch of weird liquid when she feels shame. (laughs) I just love it. There's a reference to the Max, indicating that this is all existing in the same universe. Also that same year, he puts out Four Women, about a road trip that four friends take in which they are sexually assaulted by two men, One of the women is recounting this trip to her psychiatrist. So if you notice, every single one, the Max, Zero Girl, four women, there is a counselor involved. There's some sort of therapist involved. They all have that running through them. Also female-driven plots, that sort of thing. Also sexual assault. Uh, And he ends up using his mother as inspiration for one of the characters. He said, it was interesting using her in it because I kept drawing her differently. I showed her the pictures and she said, I don't look anything like that. Well, I said, I'm trying to see you differently than I normally see you. I have all this mother stuff projected on you and I'm trying to see these four women, these four generations, because they, of course, are all of varying ages. He also, I really like this quote from him about writing women. Because obviously he writes uh, for a lot of women. I think he's been praised in a lot of ways for his writing for women, um, especially in a very male-driven time period for comic books and very masculine, macho time. The fact that the true protagonist of the Max, this hulking superhero book, is is Julie. Julie. Yeah. And it's about her dealing with trauma and her, like, kind of, uh, yeah, her emotional journey. Again, for an extreme image comic, it's like it was absolutely no one else was doing this. Yeah. Well, people were doing it. Please don't email me about right, all the right, people, that, all were the people doing. that were doing it. Sam Keith said, I'm really annoyed with guys who write women that think they know what they're talking about. The only way I can write a female character is to write a character and realize that on a certain level, it probably always rings false because I'm not a woman. I think it was, you know. Um, again, of his later work that I ended up reading, uh, the My Inner Bimbo miniseries, which was from the 2000s, sh- like it is, uh, you know, he still doesn't like quite understand. He's still, tr- you know, it's yeah. it's almost like this is the kind of thing that a person will spend their entire life trying to wrap their head around. Right. So comics are one of the most intimate art forms a person can really undertake, uh, especially from a writer artist, because short of a auteur filmmaker with absolute control over production you don't nobody else has that much choice over like what the reader experiences mm-hmm. and after shotgun blasting the max and all these side issues and all these extra series i feel like i've spent a week in this guy's head and it is weird how flawed and how just conflicted this guy is the way that you know everybody is, it's 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 all there on the page. He just seems very. He's able to channel it into his work in a way that many cannot. It's a level of rawness and unabashed honesty yeah. in a way that, quote unquote, normal people are discouraged <laughs> from being. So he also did a five-issue series called Batman Secrets, as well as a two-issue miniseries Batman slash Lobo Deadly Serious. He did another Lobo comic that was written by one of the guys in Anthrax. 
the yeah. band Anthrax. He did, uh, and then he's got. You already mentioned Arkham Asylum Madness. He d- contributed a little bit to 2000 AD's Judge Dread, and then he also did the uh, limited series Ojo and My Inner Bimbo, like you mentioned. They're all about characters connected by an encounter with an urban legend known as the Magic Trout, because Sam Keith. <laughs> and I also wanted to highlight Friends of Max. It is a, I believe it's only three issues. And it features these two characters. It's this one guy picking up this other guy from jail, and they go on this road trip, and they have these different adventures. It's like this wonderful little miniseries that is probably really hard to find, but I highly recommend it. It was uh, actually, shout outs to Evan. It was a follow-up when I was done with the Max and loved that so much. He tossed me at this, and he was like, this is this weird little hidden gem that he wrote that nobody really knows about, and I just love this story. I think it's just amazing. And it really is. It, it, check it out. He he writes really he writes road trips really well, and he writes really just fascinating tales, really fascinating. And I think he's better in short form, as you see, five issue, five issue, yeah. five issue. He's more of a short form writer, and I think he doesn't really shouldn't really have a long running ever comic strip thing. He's a storyteller. He's a short storyteller. So he's an idea man. Yeah, I he's an like. idea guy. He's uh, one of those ideas guys. The uh I, I mentioned it before, but I also read uh what exists the first three issues, I think two or three issues of uh, Arkham Dreams, which is his triumphant return to the Max character, mm-hmm. uh, where he teams up with Batman and uh the next issue is coming out uh, supposedly again auteur comic artist, not the best at sticking to schedules. Yeah. Um in January of twenty twenty. Oh, and the craziest news is Channing Tatum is in the episode of The Max because uh, oh he, yeah, Channing Tatum and Roy Lee are teaming up. Roy Lee is a big producer. He's done a bunch of stuff. They are teaming up to produce via their respective production companies to uh, a, I guess, a Max film. I don't know what's going on with this. I think a Max film. So yeah, that I'm I'm excited about that. I actually I really like Tan- Channing Tatum. He's great. I, is he gonna play the Max? I think he would actually be the perfect person to play the Max. He's, he's this big tough guy on the exterior, but he can play vulnerable really well. He can play, you, you know, uh, he can play that sort of crumpled I, up mm, guy. I you can't you can't separate the story from Sam Keith's artwork. He, as try True. as you bet, try as you might to like replicate it or do the Sin City thing where you're like paying homage to each panel individually or yeah, you can't watchman this either. Like it really is the expressiveness, the shapes, the 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 just gonzo anatomy and angles and fucking the fact like you can't switch from colored pencil to watercolor to ink splatter in a movie. Or like, if you can, it'll cost too much money. Yeah. <laughs> All the just, just fucking download. Just, just yeah, just get go on Amazon, get the original cartoon. It looks amazing in yeah. HD. Um, I think you can also watch it for free on, I believe, the Oddity. There's like an Oddities website, and you can just watch it. So I th- yeah, LiquidTelevision.com. You may maybe. not even need to look look like rent it or buy it. So check you can it out. Definitely pirate and torrent and check stream it out today. It. Watch the first episode. It's very, it's like 11 minutes long. Just yeah. watch it. It's really fascinating stuff. And thank you so much for joining us on our episode of the max. I think that's about it. Uh, and we greatly appreciate you. My name is Holden McNeely. You can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators ho, but also, also, but also please check us out on patreon.com forward slush 
Whizbrew. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. We've got weekly content for just five buck a dues a month. It is just the place to be. And by the way, I've noticed a lot of people joining uh, as patrons this past week, getting all those little e- I get a little email every time it someone joins. It brightens my day. Yeah, I always just go, huh, cool. That's the best. Thank and you. hey, guess what? Say you just give us $5 for one month. And you just go ahead and listen to all the bonus content and download it. Yeah. And then cancel the next month. Be, peace That's out. That's great. Yeah, whatever. Sure. Yeah, cool. That's fantastic. You're we would great. love that. We love it. We love you. All right. Have a great one, everyone. And always remember, never stop bruising. Always keep whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.